Good morning. It's that time of summer, isn't it, where we're all sort of bleary-eyed and extra tired and still still going full bore, right? It's, we're going to soak it all up until the summer's gone, so I hope you're enjoying uh, your summer. Uh, if you're new this morning, I want to welcome you, uh, and I want to tell you just a little bit about our church. If you take out your bulletin and just flip it over right in, at the back, we have at the top there our purpose. And if you've been here a long time, it's good for you to be reminded of our purpose as well. And it says that we're here to lead people to a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, that's what we're about as a church. That is the front and center. That is that is the main thing. We want, first of all, any, anyone who is here, we would want you to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, to have stepped over the line of faith, uh, to place your trust in him, to receive forgiveness of sins and to be brought into his family. And we want you to have that first and foremost. If you did that a long time ago, if you made that decision, if you received Christ and were brought into his family, then the divine agenda for the rest of your life is to grow in Christ's likeness. It's to continue to mature in him and to become like your savior, to become like Jesus. And we call that discipleship, learning to follow after Jesus and all that he did and all that he taught and all that he said. And so that's what we're about as a church. Um, if that's what you're looking for, then welcome. And if that's not what you're looking for, we'll try to convince you, I suppose. Um, but uh, let me just uh, just challenge you with two quick things. First of all, that's what we're about as a church. If you're new and you're considering making this your church home, then we will try to welcome you and uh, get to know you and, and try to give you opportunities to connect with us. But I do want to challenge you with this. It will take effort on your part. Uh, relationships are built because both sides work on them. And so if you're here and you want this to be your church home, I challenge you, encourage you, look for ways to plug in. Two things that you can do, try to find a small group to join. Pastor Adam is our pastor of small groups. He's upstairs right now teaching Sunday school, or you can reach him by calling the office, but he can help plug you into a small group. Also, you can watch the bulletin for uh, our, what we call, I'm forgetting the name, Dinner Eights. Dinner Eights. And this is just a time where we have dinner together, where you are invited to share a meal and just get to know some people that you don't know. Real simple, one-time commitment kind of thing, real easy to do. So I want you to to know about those things. So if you would, bow with me in prayer. Uh, We'll continue our study through the book of Exodus. We're in chapter 24 this morning. And uh, let's pray and just ask for the Lord's um, assistance here. Father, the word that has just been resonating with my heart this morning um, uh, is that word worship. Because that, that is why we are here this morning. To worship you, which is much more than just song. But it is to affirm who you are and to affirm back to you your value and your worth and the truth of your nature. To remind ourselves that you're God and that we're not. That you are the only transcendent being. You are almighty. You are the Lord and the sovereign of the world. And we belong to you. And so, Father, we're here this morning because we're declaring we don't want to worship any other thing. We want to worship you. And so we do that in song. We do that as we submit ourselves to your word. We do that as we relate to one another and love each other. We do that through the giving of our tithes and offerings. We do that through service. God, may this morning be saturated with worship because you are worth it. Help us now as we go through your word. Holy Spirit, teach us and bring the truth to bear on people's lives. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd open your Bibles to Exodus 24, the title of the message this morning is called Covenant Making. Uh, Covenant is not a word that we use a lot in our uh, everyday use today. Uh, But I do want you to think about some ways that promises and commitments and covenants and, and, and sort of lasting decisions are made. Think about some of the ways that we do that. If you're Huck Finn and you're Tom Sawyer, you... You spit in the palm of your hand and you shake on it and you have a solemn accord, right? That's how you make a covenant. Uh, If you're in the courtroom and you're being asked to be a witness to something and and you're going to promise to be a truthful witness, you raise your hand and you declare. You raise your hand to God that you're going to do this and oftentimes place your hand on the Bible and declare that what you're about to say is going to be the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. If you're making a contract, a business contract, or purchasing a house or something like that, you will bring with you your signature, a promise for all to see that this is your intent to make good on this particular decision. And in many cases, you even bring uh, some money as some kind of a pledge with your agreement. When you get married, you bring a symbol of your covenant. You bring, barely get it off, you bring a ring and you make a covenant. You say, my commitment is going to be unending as this ring is unending, as this circle is. And so we do these kinds of things to bring symbols and commitments of the covenant that uh, we are making. And in Exodus 24, we see how Israel and God enact this covenant. And we bring the symbols and the, the elements. We see the elements that are brought together to affirm this lasting commitment. Uh, we've been looking uh, the past couple of weeks at, at sort of what the substance of this covenant, this old covenant was. The Ten Commandments and the Book of the Covenants, all these laws and all these rules that we typically find so confusing in the scriptures. But we see that Israel agreed to abide by these things. And that was a way they were expressing their loyalty to God. And they brought these specific things together to ratify, to confirm, to make that covenant Commitment, And that's what we're seeing today. We're going to see the things that they brought together to make this commitment. And here's here's the little the sneak peek that I'll give you. Watch for this. Every one of these things that we're about to show you point forward to something better. So watch for that as we go. The old covenant was confirmed, first of all, with Moses as the mediator. Look at chapter 24, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near and the people may not come up with him. And so here we see that when the covenant was being made, God was working through Moses, particular, particularly as the mediator. He alone was to approach the Lord. He served as the spokesman for Israel their representative, their emissary for the people. And God even forbade the other people from coming up the mountain uh, with him. And I don't know about for you, but if I'm one of the people that's been sort of left behind, and I'm sitting there at the base of the mountain, and I'm watching Moses go up, and I'm looking and I'm thinking, this guy, this is our representative. He's our mediator to God. We're, we're placing our trust and our confidence in this fellow. I have some real fears. I think understandably so. First of all, do you remember how old Moses was at this time? He's 80 something. (laughs) He's 80 something. Uh, 
the Mount, Mount Sinai is over 7,000 feet tall. Just, just from an age and, and from a physical standpoint, I'm looking at an 82-year-old or an 80-year-old heading up this mountain. I have, I have some suspicions if he can make it or not. My grandmother came out here a couple of weeks ago. She's 82. She was visiting from Michigan. And we took her to Denali Park. And she walked the, the Savage River Trail with us. I know many of you, if you guys done that one, it's a pretty easy trail. But as I watched her, I was watching very carefully. Now, she's pretty spry. She's still cross-country skis. So she's a pretty active gal. But I'm still watching my grandmother to make sure that she can take these steps and doesn't trip over a, you know, a rock that might be hard to see. Her vision's not as good as it used to be. And uh, it was just about her speed. Any more would have been challenging. But Moses ascended a 7,000-foot peak. So, and he did it a few times. Uh, so just from a physical standpoint, I have some questions. And then secondly, I'd be thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. God only wants somebody to meet him at the top of the mountain because of his holiness and because of who he is. And yet we're sending Moses, who is a murderer. And I'm not so sure about that. God's a holy God, but Moses committed murder in his early life. And he's going to be our spokesman. He's representing all of us. Is this really the best we have to offer here? And then I would be thinking about some of his other failures. We remember even when God first commissioned him early on in the book of Exodus. Remember, he started on his journey and then it says that God stopped him dead in his tracks and, and, and nearly killed him. Because Moses had left a couple of things undone in his own family. He had not circumcised his own boys. So here he was to bring the people of Israel into a covenant relationship with God. And he hadn't even practiced the symbol of the covenant here, here at home. And so God stepped him in his tracks and his his wife, Zipporah, sort of came to his aid and took matters in her own hands, quite literally, actually, and and got the deed taken care of and sort of spared his, her husband there. But I'm I would be thinking we've got an old guy and he's kind of flawed murderer, and, you know, seems to have overlooked a few details. And then there's just my own human nature. I'd be saying, I just don't know if I trust him. If I'm at the bottom of the mountain, that's what I'm wondering. I'm thinking, is this really our best mediator? Is this, is this what we have? But what we find in this text, and we're going to find consistently, Moses as the mediator points forward. This imperfect mediator points forward to a perfect mediator. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. The, sec- the second thing that we see here that is... Uh, sort of brought to bear to confirm this covenant, the way this covenant was made, was not only with Moses as the mediator, but secondly, the people here are committing to obey. If you look at uh, verse 3, it says, When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they have responded with one voice. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. Now, when I read that passage, the first thing that comes out to me is I think it is absolutely clear there were no Baptists in Israel at this particular time. Because we can't agree on almost anything, you know. Certainly there were no Alaskan Baptists here. People don't speak with one voice almost about almost anything. Uh, we have strong opinions about things. But a million to a million and a half people spoke with one voice and said, we will obey everything. Which is an incredible commitment that they that they bring forward here, uh, and so I kind of ask myself, well, well, what was it about this statement that, uh, or what was it about this circumstance that brought forward such a unified statement? You know, was it that that Israel looked at the laws 
uh, as they were written and found them so good that, oh, yes, absolutely, this is what we want to obey. Do you remember these laws that we talked about last week? I just read through about 11 of them from the Book of the Covenants on restitution. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that we couldn't get everybody in this room to agree to those. I don't even think we could get this section over here. You guys are kind of our rowdy section, by the way, just so you know, right hand side. You guys are always the rowdier section. I'm pretty sure we couldn't even get that section to agree to those 11 verses in the new uh, of the old covenant. But here they speak with one voice. I don't think it was the law itself that compelled them. Um, was that their overwhelming confidence in the leadership that, yes, this has been well written and well represented here and we can trust these people was. I don't think it was that. I think it was that these people were confident in their God. They had seen the hand of God at work. They had seen the power of God on display. They had seen God deliver them from Egypt. They had seen them. They had seen God deal with Pharaoh. They had seen a series of training and uh, teaching them to trust in him. A series of curriculum as we've talked about it. But they could see the trustworthiness of God. I think there was fear and awe and reverence for who God was. And they wanted to be on his side. And so they agreed. We will do everything uh, written in it. And it's interesting. As impressive as this unified commitment of obedience is. We're going to find that just in a few chapters. They don't back it up. Moses doesn't even get down to the mountain. With all of the law and everything in hand. Before they're already off to idolatry. So we're going to see that in a little bit. But the point I want you to see in this is that even this impressive promise of obedience here looks forward to a more perfect obedience when that would be done by somebody else. We'll talk about that in a minute. The next thing that's brought forward to make this covenant, we've got Moses as the mediator, the people committing to obedience. And then we have a symbolic sacrifice. Look at the second half of verse four. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls, and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said, we will obey. What I want you to see in this section here is, is that nothing about this covenant commitment that's being made was quick or easy or casual or flippant. It was a solemn and costly ceremony. It took effort. There was sweat and there was blood. Uh, it, was, it was quite a chore uh, and quite a serious thing that they had engaged in here. In fact... You can see that they, they chose the reason they chose young men to participate in this was not because everybody trusted the young men or because they were so great. It's because they were strong. And this was hard work. As anybody knows who's been out moose hunting, you think tromping around in the bushes is hard until you get a moose on the ground. And then the hard work begins. And simply killing these bulls and taking the blood and doing all that needed to be done was physically uh, demanding work. We're not told how many they actually killed here, but we are told that they collected all of this this blood. And, that, and then something very important happens with it. We see that it's dispersed in two different directions. There is a Godward direction to its dispersal as some of it is splashed against the altar. 
And by that, we see that Israel is making a commitment to God. There's a Godward dimension to sort of this promise here. There's, there's a way in which they are satisfying the Lord. Uh, we, we understand this in the New Testament. The word would be propitiation, fancy theological word. Basically saying we're satisfying the wrath of God with this. There's, so there's a Godward dimension to it. And then as we'll see later on, there's a manward dispersal of this blood where it's actually sprinkled on the people. Imagine if you came to church this morning and your finest duds and I flicked out droplets of blood on you. I'm sure you would say, thank you. Yeah. But that's what happened here. And so we can see that this, this covenant is being enacted with a twofold dispersal of this blood. One satisfying the Lord and one being splashed upon the people, calling them to act consistently with the covenant that is being made here. The thing that you have to understand about, about this particular sacrifice is this, that it was a symbol only. It was a symbol those of you who have checkbooks with you this morning, I know some of you are thinking, what's a checkbook? I've heard about those. <laughs> we hardly use them anymore. But those of you who have a checkbook, you know, when you write on that check and you write on that little piece of paper, that piece of paper has no substantive value. It's just a promise. It's a note. It's just an organized way of writing down, I commit to pay this. Right? That's all that it is. The same thing that's happening here in this is happening here in this particular sacrifice. There is no substantive value in the sacrifice of these bulls. It's it's more or less a promissory note. It looks forward to a substantive sacrifice that will happen later on. It's just the symbol of it at this point. And we keep going here. The next thing that's that's uh, sort of a part of this covenant. Uh, uh, commitment that's being made here is uh, what's used is the blood of bulls. We've talked about this in verse eight. It says, then Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And so here there's sort of a picture of the grace of God being dispersed upon the people and yet also a calling them to obedience, calling them to commit to follow through with their commitment and so that's kind of the picture that's being given there. But we also understand that even this blood that's being dispersed is symbolic. It too does not have any substantive inherent value. It is a symbol. My wedding ring that I wear proudly does not marry me to my bride Amy. It is a symbol of the commitment that I've made. It tells other that I, others that I've made this commitment, but it doesn't perform that act. This blood that is being spread upon the people here does not have the ability to change them. But it points forward to the blood of one who can. It's a symbol. It's imperfect, but it points to that which is. The next piece that's really brought to bear in this covenant making process here is we see that there's a meal that is shared by the elders. Look at verse 9. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. I want you to know that we read those words and we read them too easily. For if we saw the Lord, 
I'm just not quite sure what would happen to us. So that phrase just amazes me. I have a lot of questions about that. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders, the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and they drank. In our culture, we share a meal together, uh, usually because we like their company. Uh, we want to have some fun. We just uh, want to get to know somebody better or something like that. But sharing a meal together in the ancient world uh, conveyed a lot more than, than just food. When you shared a meal together, it was much more significant. It meant that you were somehow allies. There was an affirmation of one another, an acceptance. You're sort of saying, we're family. Uh, and that's why it was so scandalous when Jesus sat down and ate with sinners and tax collectors. Because he was seemingly giving approval of them in the eyes of the Pharisees. And so what's, what's pictured here is this kind of a covenantal meal. Kind of like a wedding supper or a meal between diplomats who have just made a peace or signed some kind of treaty. And now they're sharing in this meal which represents the relationship that has sort of been created. Uh, and that's what's going on here. Um, years ago when Amy and I got married... Um, she had grown up in one church in town, a Tannum Pioneer Church, which is a funny name for a church, by the way. And it was kind of a funny church. But uh, that was the church she grew up in. Don't tell her I said that. I'll be in trouble. She's probably listening outside, though. Hi, hon. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I was working at a different church in town. And uh, so when we got married, we had an open invitation to two churches to come to our wedding. And there was a ton of people, so we did not put out supper for all of them. Um, it was a stretch just to get cake out for everybody. But the night before our wedding, we had our rehearsal dinner. And here we had, you know, our families, her family and mine, the extended family. We had all of our attendants uh, that were, you know, the, some of our most important relationships in the world. And all of these people joined us together for this meal. And it is by far for me the favorite supper that I've ever participated in was to sit down with those closest to us who were affirming the covenant that we were making and we shared a meal together. And I just remember sitting there and eating. And like the food was inconsequential. But it was just rich. Because, you know, we were affirming this thing together. And uh, it was a really special thing. And, and that's kind of what I, the sense that I, that I get here. The, the shocking part of this passage is in verse 11. We're, we're told that it's noteworthy that they saw the Lord. And he did not raise his hand against them. You should absolutely be impressed with the holiness of God here. That he would allow sinners to be in his presence and somehow without consuming them. That speaks to the holiness of God. And I just want to say this. We have too small a picture of God. We think too easily of him. And we don't think of him rightly. We don't see him in all of his majesty and his glory and his holiness. We're reminded, Pastor Adam, as he taught through Exodus 20 a couple weeks ago, that the mountain, that Mount Sinai, shook. Lightning and thunder and smoke surrounded the mountain because the presence of God touched it. And so here we're told that they had this meal together somehow in the presence of God after having seen him, and he did not raise his hand against him. So as significant and as amazing as this supper is, with the Lord on the mountain here, 
it looks forward to a better supper. We're told in um, the book of Revelation that this meal, which a few elders share in here, in Revelation chapter 19, we're told that one day all who profess faith in Jesus Christ will one day share in the wedding supper of the Lamb. We will all eat it in his presence. I don't even know what that will be like, but I think it will be pretty great. The last piece that we see here uh, that is sort of brought to bear to make this covenant is that we see um, Moses sort of temporarily entering into the presence of God. Look at verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and stay here and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commandments I have written for their instruction. Then Moses set out with Joshua, his aide, and Moses went up on the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and her are with you and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. When Moses went up the mountain, the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain. And on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up the mountain. And he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. The thing that absolutely just jumps out of the page to me is this phrase here. It looked to them like a consuming fire. Have you seen consuming fire? Uh, It doesn't say a cozy fire, warm fire, comforting fire, a consuming fire. Uh, This past week, uh, my my parents are in town visiting, my dad and I and and my oldest son, Aiden, we went uh, out to cut some wood uh, for this next winter, as many of you all are trying to do in between closures. And we ran into this truck uh, out there. My truck's the one on the left, <laughs> thankfully. And uh, this truck, which was once upon a time the same size as my truck, uh, we, we, on the right here, we, we found on our way out. And if you look closely, you can see oh, some remnants of firewood. And right here is a chainsaw. <laughs> Which I think, oh, how frustrating to have worked that hard and then drive out only for everything to catch on fire and just burn right up and be consumed. And you look closely at this vehicle, the interior is gone. I mean, there's there's some metal pieces there. But much of what was in it, the saw, the equipment used, the interior has been consumed. And consuming fire is a lot more intense than just a warm glow. If you've ever witnessed a house or a car fire or something like that. And when Israel looked to the top of the mountain, they saw what looked to them like consuming fire. I told you a couple of weeks ago that I went up to Denali National Park and I, and I hiked a trail. And the second day that I was there, uh, I, I was in the, what's called the Tatler Creek area. And I had seen uh, a sow and two cubs just before we got to the trailhead. We had seen another boar earlier before that. And uh, so this area was just rife with bears. And um, that's where my campsite was to be, (laughs) right up that trail. And so I can remember when we pulled up, you know, in the bus, and the bus had to go half a mile past the last bear sighting before it could let me off. And it stopped, and it got to the side of the road. And uh, everybody else on the bus uh, 
when I was walking forward was like, what are you doing? I can't believe you're getting out of the bus with all these bears around. And so I walked forward confidently with some swagger. (laughs) And inside I'm thinking, I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) And I distinctly remember just taking that last step, you know, off the bus and then off it goes. And I've crossed that threshold from safety to I'm in bear territory. You know what I mean? I wonder how Moses felt when he got to the top and the cloud is there and he crossed the threshold and he's in God territory. A place where there's consuming fire. But he did it and he stepped into it and he met with the Lord. And we're told for 40 days and for 40 nights he was there. Uh, That's impressive. By God's grace, he allowed Moses to enter his holy presence for a time. 40 days and 40 nights. And as much as that blows us away, that he would invite Moses into his presence, it looks forward to a time where you and I are all invited to the presence of a holy God, but we have no fear because we have a perfect advocate, a perfect representative, whom I'll talk about in just a moment. The reality is all of this All of these elements of covenant making here in the old covenant point forward to Jesus Christ. They all point forward to Jesus Christ. Moses was a good mediator. He was fine. But we have a better mediator in Jesus. Last week we learned that the old covenant was tutorial. It introduced us to things. It was instructive. It taught us about God, his nature, his holiness, his righteousness, It taught us that he keeps his commitments. It taught us about promises. It taught us about the sacrificial system. It teaches us about the consequences and the nastiness of our own sin and the weight of them. But the new covenant is confirmed in Jesus Christ. The new covenant was made with a better mediator, with Jesus as our mediator. And as faithful as Moses was, and we're told in the scriptures that he was faithful in all of God's house... Jesus is a better mediator. He is very God of very God. And he represents us to the Father. A perfect mediator. We don't have to stand back at the bottom of the mountain and have fears and suspicion and trust issues. We don't have to look at someone and say, I'm not sure they're the best mediator. We know that we have a perfect mediator in Jesus Christ. Secondly, The new covenant is based not just upon Jesus as the mediator, but it's based upon Jesus' perfect obedience. It's not up to us. It's not up to us to do everything just right and to be perfect. And here's the thing. You can't. If you're trying to do that, if you're just trying to weigh the scales out and get more good in than bad, let me tell you right now, you're going to fail. And it's not enough. Even if you had only one sin mark against you your whole life, It's one too many. You're a sinner. And you need the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. But Jesus lived the perfect life. Hebrews 4.15 says this. For we have a high priest. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted. In every way. Just as we are. Yet was without sin. And that is our mediator. We also see that this new covenant was made with a substantive sacrifice. 
Not one that was just a symbol only, but it had real, actual value. Christ's sacrifice was worth it. In Romans 3, 25 and 26, it says this, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. The sacrifice of the bulls was a symbol. It was a promissory note. It looked forward to Jesus. Jesus' sacrifice had value. It was not a symbol. We see that what that the new covenant was also based upon the blood of Jesus Christ. We, when we looked at this, uh, this verse in verse 8 here, we saw that the old covenant was initiated by the, bull, the blood of bulls. Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. But in the New Testament, in Luke chapter 22, Jesus says, This cup is the new covenant in what? In my blood. This is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. It is a substantive sacrifice. It is blood with real power. Not just symbol, not just looking forward. It was the real thing. Finally, we see it results in this new covenant results in a promise, uh, a meal that all believers will share in. Just as the old covenant uh, brought 70 or so of the elders to eat a meal in the Lord's presence, we're told that the new covenant in Revelation 19 results in those who have placed their faith in Christ are able to celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb and to be in His presence and to celebrate that covenant that we have with Him. And finally, the result is this, eternal life in the presence of God. Moses got 40 days and 40 nights. Pretty impressive. But for those who trust in Christ, we get eternity. Eternity. This morning, I want to bring all of this to a conclusion by simply asking you this. Have you entered into this new covenant? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Is your confidence in your own performance, your own ability to earn or to achieve standing with God? If it is, you have no hope. The only thing that makes us right with the Lord is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. His blood shed on the cross for our behalf. And if we place our faith in him. And if we trust in him. We receive forgiveness for sins. His blood covers all of that. And when God looks at us. He no longer sees us as sinners. But he sees the righteousness of Jesus. Our perfect mediator. And if you've never made that decision. Then this morning right now. I want to give you an opportunity to do that. I want you to cross over the line of faith. Let me say it as clearly as I can. Without Jesus Christ. You have No hope in this life or the life to come. Without Jesus Christ, you have no hope in this life or in the life to come. The thing I want for you more than anything else is the assurance of knowing you're in the family of God based on a perfect mediator, Jesus. And so I would ask you, I would implore you, 
to make that decision this morning. If that expresses the desire of your heart, then I, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And if, if that's what you want to do, I'd ask you to quietly pray it back to the Lord where you are. Would you bow with me? Father, I admit I'm a sinner. And I'm in need of your grace and of your forgiveness. I know I cannot be in the presence of the consuming fire of a holy God. Unless I have one who has borne my sin. And so I trust in Jesus. Father, I receive him as my Lord and Savior. I receive forgiveness of my sins. I accept your free gift. And I want to follow Jesus. Lord, thank you for your grace and your mercy in our lives. Even if we've made this decision two decades ago. When we hear about the sacrifice of Christ and that he has made a way to bring us to the Father. Our heart rejoices. Lord, I pray for those who have made that commitment this morning. That they would find fellowship with those who can encourage them in their walk with the Lord. May this commitment take root. May they learn the joy of following Christ. May we as a church encourage them. Thank you for the old covenant which taught us our need for the new covenant. Thank you for the new covenant which is in Jesus' blood. In his name we pray. Amen.